So we're going to continue in our series, the book of Revelation. We're titling, entitling it Strength for Today and Hope for Tomorrow. And you know, like Pastor Brad said, we, we're, this is our third Sunday in the series now. And at the beginning, uh, Brad was saying that, uh, that there was a level of intimidation that he was feeling about Revelation. And I admit, I was in the same camp. I, I had, when he said, let's do Revelation, I was like, let's not. <laughs> like, you know, like fall is like really busy time in life and busy time in church life. And Revelation takes effort and time. And, you know, like, do we really have that kind of time? We're like super busy with other stuff. And, and then like, what if we, what if we interpret it wrong? And lead our whole church astray, and they miss the end times, and <laughs> like, is it really worth it? Like, I, all those things. And then Pastor Brad started getting all excited. <laughs> yeah, like, really. And, uh, and I was like, okay, I guess we're doing it. And, uh, and then the Lord just reminded me. Uh, he said, he just reminded me quietly, saying, what do I usually say when I show up? What does the Lord usually say in the New Testament when he shows up? First things that usually come out of his mouth. Fear not. Do not be afraid. He said that to Mary. He said like over and over. In fact, in the book of Revelation, he says that to the uh, Apostle John right at the beginning. I think in verse 16 or 17, chapter 1. Do not be afraid. And I thought, of course, Whenever God reveals himself, he starts with saying, don't be afraid. And then on top of that, in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, and for everybody who reads this book to the church, and for everybody who listens to the book, and then for all of us who obey it, I have a special blessing for you. And I'm thinking, why are we feeling intimidated? The Lord Jesus himself is showing up as a revelation to us saying, don't be afraid, I will bless you. Oh yeah, okay, bring it on. Change of mindset for the book of Revelation. So what does God have in store for us? Let's pray together and then we'll dig in where we are in chapter 2. Father in heaven, you know, you know all things. You know each of us here this morning. And in your son, Jesus Christ, you've given us a revelation of who you are and what's in store for us. Would you keep pouring out your Holy Spirit on us at, Jer at Jericho Ridge here, Lord? Would you reveal to us um, what you have for us as we read and as we listen and as we try to live out and obey the words of the prophecy to your church in the book of Revelation? Thank you that we are part of this prophecy Thank you that when you, Jesus, spoke these words to the seven churches in Asia at the time, that you also had us in mind. You saw us today as part of your bride, as part of the church, and you were speaking to us and including us in this revelation. So Jesus, build your church today. Build it through us. Use us. Grow us. Shape us the way you need us so that your kingdom can come as it is in heaven here on earth. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So last week, we, uh, uh, Pastor Brad 
started us in the portion of uh, Revelation that we know as the letters to the churches. And seven letters to seven churches in Asia at the time that the Apostle John received the letters. Uh, I think we have a map to help us see where. So you see the uh, little red writing there that says Patmos. There's that little island off the uh, shore of Asia, what we now know as like Turkey. Um, and John was in prison on that island when he was writing and when he, or when he received the revelation and started to write it down. And then these are the, the seven churches, uh, that circle of churches that uh, are addressed in the first portion of Revelation. And John wrote this letter to them as a critique of what was happening at the time, a critique of the Roman Empire and uh, as a declaration to the churches that no, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And that was a radical thing at that time. Think of the scope and the breadth of Rome at that time. Think of the conquering that they had done. Think of the, the incredible things that they had brought to so society. Historians, you know, you teach our kids, right? Like the Rome, uh, Ro what Rome did, bringing the road system through, the communication lines through, the aqueducts, bringing water from the, 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 the rural areas into the cities and, and the commerce that was... I mean, Rome did amazing things for the economy and the society at the time. And so it was almost a, a no-brainer to say that Rome, that Roman Empire was amazing. It was almost a no-brainer to say that Caesar, who ruled over that empire, was Lord. And if you didn't say it, he would come and make sure you said it. There was that part too, because they had this incredibly vast and powerful army. And John is writing to the churches and saying, uh, no, he's not Lord. Don't be declaring him as Lord. We also learned last week that the, uh, the seven is symbolic, the seven churches, the seven letters is symbolic of a, of a number of perfection, and so that the writing, these letters, uh, while specific to these different churches, also encompass and represent the entire church for every generation. And so we are included as Jericho Ridge as part of what God was revealing to the Apostle John. That's why he asked him to write it down. That's why it's been recorded. That's why it's been kept from generation to generation to generation because we are part of this revelation. And so everything that and anything that uh, any church in any generation will encounter, any, any struggle, any challenge, anything, we'll find answers for that within these seven letters. Last week, uh, just a quick summary. We read the letters to the church in Ephesus and Sardis. And again, it was clear that, yeah, we're a part of this. Like, we could identify with them. If you remember, Jesus commanded them for their good works, for their patient endurance, uh, for their intolerance of evil people. He commended them for not quitting when things got difficult. And uh, Pastor Brad talked a little bit about how, how many of us could relate to that as being part of Jericho, especially if you've been here for a few years and we've had some ups and downs, uh, some struggles. Jesus also identified in the church in Ephesus, uh, a shift, a heart shift. And some of us can identify with that. Um, the church in Ephesus had become very busy, right? They were, they were like a, uh, a flagship church out there that you would want to emulate. But Jesus was saying, ah, you're so busy that you've, you've lost the intimacy. You've lost time for intimacy with me. You've lost that first love. And uh, in our busy society, um, yeah, 
I don't know about you guys, but I can relate. I can relate that there's lots of times where I am busy, busy doing uh, good things, uh, church things, Christian things, um, and sometimes I get so busy that I just like, I don't do it consciously, but I re- looking back, I re- Jesus, just get out of the way. I, I got this. Like, let, you, you said do, th- okay, I can do it. Just, okay, so we can relate to that first century church in Ephesus and Sardis. And uh, with them, we can hear Jesus' call to return back to your first love, return back to the practices and to the disciplines that were prevalent when we first fell in love with Jesus. And it's that command of returning to intimacy with Jesus, not as that romantic ideal. I'm, we're not asking you to go back to that you know, emotional high of when you first met Jesus and got baptized or, or when you were around the campfire at camp and, you know, and you're... That's not what we're talking about. It's a place where our beliefs and our activities flow freely out of our love and our relationship with Jesus. When we as a church act because we're in love with the head of the church. That's the connector from Ephesus and Sardis also to the next two churches that we're going to look at today, Smyrna and Pergamum. So we'll start reading in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. It'll be up on the screen. encourage you to look on your devices, in your Bibles. Verse 8. So Jesus is speaking to the Apostle Paul. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who is dead but is now alive. Jesus says, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you're rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they're not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You'll suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. John, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have the Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. And so John is using, and he will use it in all the letters, all seven letters, the same format that uh, Brad mentioned to us last week, this format of introduction. Jesus says, this is who I am. Then a word of commendation. Church, this is what you're doing really well. Then flat out, 
I got some complaints. This is what you're not doing well. And then a command. This is what you need to be doing. And so we see that again in these two letters. And he's speaking to two churches that are undergoing some significant amount of pressure. Now let's pause and think about pressure in life. We live in a pressure cooker society. This should not be difficult for you. All I have to do is say, think about tomorrow. It's Monday. Think about Tuesday. Oh yeah, some of you are already on Friday. Right? Like we know what pressure is. Usually we think of pressure in the negative connotation like, uh uh-oh, if we don't relieve the pressure, someone is going to blow. If we don't settle things down, dad's going to lose it. That does happen in our house sometimes. But as you know, not all pressure is blatantly bad. In fact, some of you here subscribe to the fact that you do your best work when you're under pressure. It's a lie, but you still believe that. We can do good things under pressure, and sometimes pressure can be good. Often, though, it's seemingly good, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And so this is the setting that the church in Smyrna and the church in Pergamum are under, but they're two very different kinds of pressures, and and we'll talk about each church. But essentially, the church in Smyrna was facing a pressure as a result of negative circumstances. The church in Smyrna is being persecuted, physical persecution, while the church in Pergamum is actually kind of in a seemingly good environment, uh, a rather tolerant environment, and they're uh, in that favorable setting, they are coming under pressure. And in both situations, Jesus gives them the same command. Okay? Remain faithful, he says. Why? Well, if there are two kinds of pressures, if there's good pressure and bad pressure in the world, then there's also two kinds of ways that Satan will bring us under attack, okay? There's the persecution. That's what the church in uh, Smyrna was facing. This is a full-on frontal assault. This is, you're down, and I'm going to kick you. You're still down, I'm going to kick you some more because I want to completely take you out. And let's not pull any punches. The pure purpose of Satan is to deceive, to destroy, and to kill. So the kicking when you're down doesn't stop on his behalf until you're dead. That's his goal. Okay? That's what the church in Smyrna is facing. The pressure that comes when we are under seemingly good times or very good times is a different one. He knows when we're in that space that a kick isn't going to do a whole lot. He uses a very different tactic. He seduces us. He plays up the fact that things are going well. And in there, he begins to find cracks, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to uh, the church in Pergamum. But it's this idea that something that, uh, the allure of something uh, seemingly enticing, but ultimately Satan's going to use it for destruction. John Stott, uh, in his book, What Christ Thinks of the Church, says it a little bit differently. He takes these uh, two, the physical and the seducing, and he breaks them into three. 
And uh, I think this is also a helpful way of looking at it as well. So again, the physical, where, where I had persecution earlier, he's got the physical uh, pressure and attack, persecution, open hostility, violent powers el- aiming to eliminate you. And then he takes seduction and he, and, he, and he takes it into the intellectual and the moral categories. So in the intellectual, there's error, false teaching, insidious theology, materialism, deception, contamination. I like that word. And then in the moral, sub-Christian ethical standards, tolerance, compromise, comfort, conformity to the world's ways. I don't know if any of us can relate to that. In any of these circumstances, and in each of these circumstances, Jesus' command to his church is the same. Be faithful. Be faithful to the head of the church. The book of Revelation big picture, 30,000 feet, calls us to endure tribulation, to hold fast the truth, and to obey God's commands in life. So what does that look like as a church? Let's look at church in Smyrna first. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who is dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they're not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You'll suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Church, if you have ears to hear, you must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to us. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. So Smyrna is a persecuted and suffering church. But Smyrna is also a church that loves Jesus so much that they willingly counted it, as we look at their history, as a privilege to suffer for Jesus. There's that saying, you are willing to suffer only for those you love. Willing to suffer only. That was the church of Smyrna. They were willing to suffer. You see, they didn't have the same problem that Ephesus had and Sardis had where you've left your first love. You're willing to do all this other stuff, but your first, no, the church in Smyrna loved Jesus so much that for them it was a privilege to be physically persecuted. And it was dangerous to be a Christian in Smyrna. It was very dangerous. The city was extremely patriotic to Rome. Um, it, it actually was the hub of what we call the cult of the empire and the emperor. The city of Smyrna took pride in being the flagship for the Roman Empire in many ways. They had the only temple, so I don't know if they did like a, I don't know, like a, a survey or, or some sort of contest or something, but Smyrna won the opportunity, opportunity to have the temple dedicated to Emperor Tiberius at the time. And they were the only city in the entire Roman Empire that was allowed to have that temple because of their faithfulness, their dedication to the Roman Empire. They were awarded that right, that honor. And so the average citizen of Smyrna uh, looked to Rome and to Caesar Uh, with high, high esteem, and Rome looked back on them with favor. But for the Christians, 
Caesar wasn't Lord. Jesus was Lord. And that was extremely unpatriotic. So they came under severe persecution, including from the Jewish sector. We've just read about that. You see, the Jews had negotiated uh, religious sacrificial exemptions as, a, as their own little mini-nation within Rome. They negotiated that they didn't have to sacrifice to Caesar. They didn't have to pay that homage to him. And so they had a, a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, get a jail card free, and they used that status to, to uh, point fingers at the Christians and say, oh, you guys aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not going to the Temple of Tiberius and honoring Caesar. And the locals in Smyrna were eating that stuff up. And so that's why Jesus calls out the Jews and says that they're not really part of God's nation, that they've actually, I mean, strong words. Their synagogue belongs to Satan, verse 9. And they were persecuting. They were using their exempt status to persecute the Christians and try to help take them out. In all, Jesus mentions four types of persecutions for the church in Smyrna. Poverty in verse 9. So again, a wealthy city uh, in proximity and, and in, in its trade routes and stuff. Uh, but Christians, again, being honest and generous people, that went against the materialistic nature of the city and how people were gaining their wealth. And so they were being taken advantage of. Jesus uh, lists slander and blasphemy, also verse 9. The Jews, we just talked about that, spreading those false rumors and the locals eating up that gossip, feeding on it. Jesus says prison, verse 10. He says this is coming. John's already in prison on the island of Patmos. And then death, verse 10, martyrdom, that was also coming. And Jesus says don't be afraid of that stuff. He uses the, the phrase you'll be of 10 days. That again is a, uh, not a literal 10 days, but again a a sign that it won't last that long when you're there. Now in Canada, we probably can't, well, we probably, we can't. Let's be honest, we can't relate to that kind of persecution. We just, it's, it's not where we're at. But we're not exempt from suffering, are we? Is there anybody here who has not suffered? Is there anybody here who has not faced challenge? Okay, so we're not exempt. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says that suffering is an identifier of the Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, one of the ways that you know you are a Christian is that you suffer and that you will suffer for his name's sake. That hardship is inevitable. And whenever we have hardship, there's going to be attack from Satan. And whenever we have that attack, there's going to come uh, out within us a human inclination to what? To avoid suffering. None of us will run with joy and open arms to suffering. Our, our human reaction is to avoid suffering. And uh, when we, uh, as believers start to put out the truths of who Jesus Christ is, when we start to proclaim what the gospel says about the kingdom, let's be honest. Let's, let's list some of those things. Sinful humanity. 
uh, God's wrath and judgment. The impossibility that of me saving myself, no matter how good I am, no matter how many self-help classes I go to, no matter how much I can, I cannot save myself. The necessity of the cross, like that's just, mm, really? Like that had to happen? The fact that we talk about eternity and there's heaven and there's hell. Like none of these things are things that really our society wants to hear. None of these things are things that, um, I don't want to say don't draw people, but you get, you get what I'm saying, right? Like you start to tell somebody that they're sinful, and you start to tell somebody that if they don't do something about their sin, that God will judge them, and that hell could be a very real possibility, and that no, you're not good enough to do anything to save yourself, and you can present a very unfavorable gospel picture there. And that's often what people hear, and that's often the kind of hardship, that kind of thing that brings us under hardship, or at least provokes opposition within our society. The reality to live out Christ's moral standards and profess Christ's monotheistic proclamations, his truisms that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody else. That's unpopular stuff in our liberated age of diversity and tolerance. In fact, you start saying that stuff loud and proud, and you will be labeled a fundamentalist. You will be labeled a radical. All you have to do is go home today and start putting some of that stuff on Facebook and see what comes back. People will start to tell you, hey, uh, your best before date is long due. Like, you just need to shut up. Stop. That's not who we are in Canada anymore. And they want to remove you from the conversation. Jesus says to his church in Smyrna undergoing persecution, be faithful. He says, Jericho, be faithful. Be faithful. Don't give up. Don't be afraid. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will be singled out when you start to talk about Jesus. And you will suffer. And he says, you will need to follow me to the cross. But he says, your persecution's for a limited time. There's that 10 days phrase. It has limited effect. Because with the call to suffer to the church in Smyrna and to us today, Jesus also says, when you are faithful, I will reward you with the crown of life. That's an eternal promise. That's something that the world cannot touch. It's an outcome of grace. Jesus, head of the church of Smyrna, head of the church of Jericho, he's eternal. He's victorious. He knows what it's like in 2017 in the township of Langley. And he continues to remain in sovereign, in balanced rule. Remember he says to the church in Smyrna, you, I know your poverty, but you're rich, exclamation mark. See, there's a balance. In the world's eyes, you're poor, but in my economy, you're rich. Jesus is in control. He's purposeful, and he's generous. He says, I want to give you the crown of life. Yes, if we follow Jesus, we will suffer, and that's hard for us to wrap our brain around sometimes because we think of third world and how they suffer, but we will suffer here too. We do suffer. 
but be faithful. Do not be afraid. He starts his letter to the church in Smyrna with, it's me, Jesus, first and last, the one who died and lives again. I know your trials, and I know your destiny. And I'm going to give you the crown of life. So be faithful under pressure. Now notice he didn't say, be self-reliant. Notice he didn't say, turn the tables on those guys. Take them out. You can do this. Notice he didn't say, be successful. We're not called to be any of those things. Let me take the pressure off your shoulders. There's not a person in this room, including me, that is called to be successful. Not one of you. You are called to be faithful. Jesus is successful. We are called to be faithful. And when we're faithful, Jesus says, I will build my church. Not you guys, not us, not your pastors, not your elders. Stop trying to build this church. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will? Exactly. So Smyrna, be faithful. Jericho, be faithful. Don't try to be successful. Don't try to get this church from 150 to 300. I'll do that. In fact, I might take it to 3,000. I might take it to 100. That's my job. You be faithful. Don't worry about your finances. Don't worry about your business being a success. Be faithful. I'll take care of the other stuff. That's what he's telling the church in Smyrna. Even if you have to follow me to the point of death, even if circumstances and life takes you to that very brink, and even when it takes you past that brink, and you will die. Newsflash. Jesus says, the second death will not harm you. Do not be afraid. I will give you the crown of life. Jesus builds his church. And the gates of hell will not conquer it. Even in a city like Pergamum, where we're told Satan has his throne. Let's switch over to the church in Pergamum and what they're facing. Now, you'd think that if your city was known as a city, like let's say, you know, Langley had a, you know, our town, uh, what's our sign say outside, uh, like on the streets there, what's our town slogan, township? Come on, people. I think Langley City is where, like, city and country meet. What's township? I don't know. It's probably something about city and country, and it's a great place to live, and I don't know, whatever it is. But it probably does not say where Satan has his throne. <laughs> pretty sure I, I'm pretty sure I would have not remembered that one. And here we read about the city of Pergamum, and the first thing we hear about is, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Oh, great. And you'd think if you lived in that city, you'd be experiencing this blatant try-to-take-you-out persecution that the Christians in Smyrna were facing. But that's not what they were facing in Pergamum. That wasn't the norm. Verse 12, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. 
I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you've remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. So they did face some persecution to the point of death. And again, we're told of Satan's cities. But listen to the complaints that Jesus has. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip you up or trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food, offered to idols, and by committing sexual sin. In the same way, you've got some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. So repent of your sin, or I'll come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Jesus begins by saying that he knows where we live. He knows better than us the time and the place that we are situated in. He knew Ephesus, and he could see that they were busy doing all sorts of stuff, and on the outside it looked like one thing, but on the inside it was something else. He knew in Smyrna that they were, they were suffering, and it was hard, and he knew their heart was still good and right where it needed to be, and he wanted to bless that, and he could see in Pergamum that it was just the center of paganism. It was a place where truth and error, where truth and heresy were battling it out. You see, Pergamum was a place where many philosophies was a way to get to truth. Pergamum was a, a, a city that was full of temples and altars. It was, it was a thriving hub of that cult of the emp- empire and the emperor. While Smyrna had the flagship temple, you know, they had the one great piece... Pergamum went the other way and said, okay, well, we'll have lots, we'll have wide bandwidth. We'll, like, just have tons of stuff for Rome and for the emperor. And so it took pride in this idea of many ways, many thoughts leading to the truth. More, uh, the more people we can bring around with different philosophies and ideals and that kind of stuff to the table, the better it will be. And so their society and their economy, their lifestyle is flourishing under this. People are are flocking to this city because of that. Does that help you connect our time in our cities with them in any way? Knowledge and bringing as many people as we can in around the table. that's, That's how our society works right now. And the church in Pergamum, Jesus says, you know, you're sticking to your theological convictions even in the face of martyrdom. That's good. There's just one problem. Uh, God's a jealous God. God's a God of one. The monotheism idea. And he says you're to worship him and him alone, not him along with. The church in Pergamum allows some false prophets to be part of the church, to have a place at the table. And Jesus says, I have a few complaints. Because the guarding of the gospel was of primary concern for Jesus. It is. For Ephesus, it was a matter of love. Jesus saying, you don't love me. For Pergamum, it's a matter of truth. Jesus saying, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody else no other philosophy. Be vigilant in proclaiming and living that truth. 
Friends, love and truth are linked because they're linked in Jesus. You can't love without truth and you can't be truthful without love because Jesus encapsulates both of those. So if you love Jesus and Jesus is the truth, then he's saying to the church in Pergamum, how can you be ignorant or indifferent or even lackadaisical as you are regarding truth? So go back to John Stott's um, breakups of how, uh, breakdown of how uh, Satan, the tactics he uses in those last two were the intellectual and the moral and how he seduces us, right? They don't come under that section of physical, you know, in your face, kick you when you're down kind of stuff. It comes under things are going well, so let's make them go even better. Let's fan this uh, flame and see what happens. And he begins to seduce. When physical attack is absent, you can be sure that Satan is at work in the area and with the art of seduction. He's at work in our comfort zones, seducing us to to get to the place where he can begin to contaminate our thoughts and our beliefs, and then we begin to compromise our practices. And that's what's happening in the church in Pergamum at the time. And Jesus is saying, you need to remain absolutely faithful to the absolute Jesus. Savior and Lord. How do we live that out? It's one thing to believe it, another thing to say it, another thing to live it. You see, the holiness of Jesus on display within the life of his church is also on trial in Pergamum. Because when, you're, when, you're, when your uh, mind begins to be contaminated and when your beliefs begin to be compromised, then what flows out of that is your actions and that also is subpar when it comes to Christ's standards. You can't just talk the talk. You've got to be able to walk that. And when you don't, when, when you either, as a, as a believer, are not speaking truth, or when you are not walking out truth, then you're a liar. And I'm a liar. Plain and simple. And in the church in Pergamum, they had allowed the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites. And... It wasn't even so bad. Well, I mean, it was bad, but I mean, it wasn't like, again, it wasn't like right in your face. It, basically, what these guys were teaching at the time was, hey, guys, uh, you're saved by grace, right? You Christians say you're gr- saved by grace. Oh, yeah, we are. Yeah, let's have a conversation. Well, in order for there to be grace, there must be sin. Yeah. Well, if you want more grace, why not have more sin? And not, not, nothing too big, nothing too egregious, just, just a little bit over here. Like, like this is okay. Like, cause when, if I do this and then I ask God for forgiveness and his grace comes, then there's more grace. And do you see the insidiousness of that? Like to us, it's like, oh, come on, really? That's, it happens all the time to us. We rationalize that kind of stuff all the time. And Jesus is saying, not good. Just that little theological shift. Just a little immorality. You don't have to go to extremes. It's okay. Just this one time, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You just ask for forgiveness later. Grace abounds even more. The church in, Hef- in Ephesus hated false teaching. I don't remember that phrase in Ephesus. You hate the false teachers. In Pergamum, 
they tolerated the false teachers. In Pergamum, they said, hey, why don't, yeah, okay, come into our church and be a part of our leadership. Have a place at the table. And it's here in Pergamum, in this city, that we're told that Satan has his throne. So church, Jesus says, repent of your sin. Be faithful in declaring, living out the truth. Or I'm going to just come and do it myself, he says. I will come with a two-edged sword. And I will battle that stuff. I will eradicate all the untruth, the error. I will cut that stuff out. And friends, you don't want to be on the wrong side of the battle when Jesus presents himself. Because victory's already been declared in that battle. And for those who listen, Jesus says, for those who are faithful, again, a promise of reward. Promise of reward. I'm going to give you some of the manna that is hidden in heaven. I'm going to give you this white stone. And on this white stone, there's going to be a name written on it. And nobody's going to understand that name but you. Okay, this is, this is, this is the crazy apocalyptic stuff. Start, like, well, what, well, what is it? Well, I don't think it's that hard. The Gospels tell us that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus currently is residing in heaven, at the right hand, in the throne. And Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum and to us, you are faithful and you persevere. I will give you some of that manna, some of that bread of life that is currently hidden in heaven. I'm sure that he's talking about himself. That is part of your reward. You get to feast on Jesus. And what about this crazy little rock? Like, why do I need this white little rock? Like, what? There's lots of different uh, interpretations of what this rock is. Um, there's, there's ten, and, and any one of them could be right. I don't proclaim to know exactly what it is. But I do agree with the scholars. You know, you put your flag somewhere. I, I put my flag with the scholars who say that this rock is your ticket. This rock is, uh, symbolizes and had s s uh, similar symbolic... Um, uh, significance at that time. Uh, it was often a sign that you were welcome into an event or into a place. What's with the writing on the, uh, the thing? And only you'll, I think, and other scholars also, some think that that name is going to be Jesus' name. Some people think it's going to be your name. And that could also be the case. As you're a new creation and under Jesus, that you will receive a new name. And we know, like, when he did that with some of the disciples, he often renamed them. Simon became Peter, that kind of thing. Some, I tend to lean towards thinking that it's going to be Jesus' name. And that the reason nobody else can understand it, because he says what? The ways, my ways to the world are foolish. They don't get it. They're not going to be able to see that name. But you, as ones who are faithful to me, you will know that name. You will know and so I think that the blessing for the church in Pergamum and for us as well as we are faithful under this kind of persecution is twofold. I think it's, I think it's a, a, a head and a heart blessing. I think it satisfies the, the, the spirit in, in so many beautiful ways because we are invited into heaven to feast in the presence and on the person of Jesus Christ. And that satisfies the longings in our heart. And we have this 
intellectual uh, capacity to understand who he is. Like, we're going to see his name, I think, and understand it. We're going to get it. And others are going to be like, I don't get it. It's because you didn't, you weren't faithful. You haven't lived and proclaimed him as Savior and Lord. And so we have this opportunity of blessing, eternal blessing that will satisfy us in so many incredible ways. Fullness of Christ permeating into every longing of my heart. The fullness of Christ satisfying every question of my mind. Oh my goodness, church. Throw on the crown of life on top of that. Is that worth enduring? Is that worth being found faithful when you're persecuted, when you're suffering? For me, it is. Absolutely. And if you're like me, I absolutely need to be reminded of this stuff. Like, don't go asking, but if you ask my wife and kids, they'll, they'll tell you, like, I'm a whiner. Like, when I'm sick, I, you know, I don't like it. And I, when I'm under pressure, I don't like it. Like, when I'm suffering, challenged, I, like, I don't like it. I'll just be honest. I do tend to find the path of re least resistance. And uh, pain and suffering is not one of them. And so when I'm in those situations, I want you guys to remind me Remind me why I should be faithful. Remind me why I shouldn't just pack it in and do it like Joe down the street. Remind me why I shouldn't just compromise and do this sin a little bit because it feels so good and everybody else is doing it. Remind me that I'm going to enjoy the fullness of Christ. Nana in heaven. Like, I'm going to get the crown of life. Remind me. Church, remind each other. Maybe today you're struggling to stay faithful to Jesus. Maybe, maybe today you came and you're like, that's it, I'm done with Jesus. Like, enough is enough. Like, you didn't show up in this. Or, or, or we've been going through this crap for a long time. Like, where are you? Maybe you just looked at your neighbors who rolled in with a new car in the driveway and you're like, man, our car sucks. This keeps putting money into it. Front end needs work. The brakes need work. Exactly. You need someone at Preston to fix it. And maybe today the pain is getting the better of you. Maybe today the reality that cancer in your body just is too much. Or maybe today the pain of relation, broken relationship is enough. Maybe you're here and you've already been compromising and you've already been giving in and you've already fallen back into old habits. I don't know. The word from Jesus is the same to all of us. He says, come back, repent. Just come back to me. Don't give up. I have a reward for you, the crown of life. I will give you all of myself. 
to invite the worship team to come up. And I'm going to invite people to head off to the sides to pray. And if you're wrestling with stuff today, and you're wondering if it's not grass isn't greener on the other side, or, or whatever is your source of feeling challenge or suffering or persecution, or you're just thrown in the towel, you are not called to be faithful alone. We are called to be faithful as church. We are called to stand with each other. So let's be church. Let's remind each other of the truth. Let's encourage and support. Let's stand up for each other in suffering. If your marriage is hurting right now, go and talk to one of these people so that someone else can stand up for your marriage in the heavenly realms and walk with you. If your body's hurting, go and talk to one of these people so that they can pray and they can stand with you. Friends, we as a church are called to be faithful. And one of the ways that we can do that is in prayer for each other.